Open your Bibles to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9, beginning with verse 20. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the Purex uh, that you find in front of you. So we started the book of Esther, I think it was sometime late January or early February, and this morning, uh, our sermon brings us to the conclusion of this series. So we are wrapping up our series on the book of Esther this morning. Uh, next week is Palm Sunday, so we are going to uh, consider some of the themes surrounding uh, Palm Sunday, and then of course the following Sunday is Easter. We'll be focused on considering the resurrection and its implications for life. And then after that, we're going to begin a series um, along the lines of uh, spirit-empowered neighboring. So what does it mean to be a person filled with the Holy Spirit as you relate to the diverse neighbors that God has placed around you in your life? So that's where we're going from here. But this morning, Esther chapter 9, uh, beginning with verse 20. Um, through chapter 10, uh, verse 3. So let me go ahead and read these verses for us. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed, at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, 
and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would bring your word to life. This ancient text, I pray that you would make it accessible and relevant to our lives as we conclude our study of it. And we pray that you would do this, Holy Spirit, wherever we find ourselves this morning. Some in this room this morning believe. Others of us know that we don't believe. And some aren't sure what we believe exactly. But you are able to come and find us and drive the truth home to our hearts because After all, you are both creator and redeemer. So we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would fulfill your purposes and that you would bless the preaching of your word for Jesus' honor and glory. Amen. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to try to imagine celebration, celebration without feasting. I challenge you. I, I dare you to try to imagine a lifelong celebration apart from feasting. If you think about it, throughout our lives, so much of our celebrating includes feasting, doesn't it? I grew up with uh, an Italian father, and so that was especially the case for us. There was no such thing as celebrating without good food and drink. Can you relate at all? On some level, you all can relate, maybe some of you more than others. But this is a part of life, isn't it? Um, I mean, just think about various holidays, uh, whether it be uh, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or New, York, New Year's Day and Thanksgiving in particular. In my mind, at least, I associate all of these holidays with feasting. I cannot imagine them apart from it. Well, as we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, the conclusion of the book of Esther, we actually find out the purpose for which this book was written to begin with. Now, as we've said throughout this series, the author of Esther is unclear to us. Um, Nowhere in the book does it make mention of who the author was, who wrote this down for us. But we do learn the purpose, and the purpose comes to us here in this final section of Esther. Basically, you can think of the book of Esther, the narrative as a whole, as an attempt to explain for the people of God, for the Jews in particular at that point in history, where the holiday, so to speak, of Purim came from. Why is it that we celebrate this holiday? Would have been a question that possibly Jews were asking themselves um, later down in history. And the book of Esther seeks to explain, to give context for that. And what we learn in the middle of all that has been going on in this book. Now, if you've been with us, you know, and maybe even if you haven't, just maybe you're familiar with the book of Esther. It is a really intriguing and unusual book. And I would say for at least two main reasons. The first reason being this, there is no mention of God in the book of Esther. You're probably tired of hearing me say that. But that's a big deal, isn't it? This was kind of our focus last week. Nowhere in the book of Esther is God mentioned. He's not mentioned. He doesn't make a physical appearance. There's none of that. And so we're not going to go back into it, but the question that we've kind of been 
raising throughout is, how is this a book of the Bible? How does this function as a, a sacred, a, a religious, a spiritual text in our lives? And then the other thing that is a, a bit unusual and, and maybe more so frustrating is that whoever this author of Esther is, they provide little to no commentary for us. And what I mean by that is particularly commentary about the actions of the characters. We're not given commentary at any given action by a character that says, this act was moral, this act was immoral. And so there are many places throughout Esther where we feel like we lack closure, that we lack full understanding of what exactly were the motivations of the character there? What was going on in the mind and heart of that character when they did this particular thing. So those are just some of the big picture features that make Esther unusual and maybe even frustrating that we've encountered. But as we wrap up the book of Esther, I want us to consider to reflect on how the theme of celebration and feasting fits into this narrative. Because what we learn from the book of Esther, particularly from this conclusion, is that feasting is a significant part of God's kingdom. Feasting is a central part of God's kingdom because celebration and feasting help us to do at least two things. Feasting and celebrating help us to remember and it help us, helps us to reawaken. So let's first kind of look at this through the lens of how feasting and celebration helps us to remember. It can be hard to remember for a lot of different reasons, right? Um, maybe just gaps in time. You know, the, the further that we go in, in life and we get further removed from a particular event or sequence of events, it becomes easier to forget, right? Particularly all of the specific details of, of something. And so remembering helps us to remember, to refresh in our memories about what happened in the past. Um, but remembering is also very much a spiritual practice, and, and that we're going to view it in, in, through that lens. That's really what we're talking about. That's the context of how remembering is a spiritual practice. Uh, Margaret Bendroth, in her book, The Spiritual Practice of Remembering, says this, Remembering, like all matters spiritual, requires imagination, trust, and courage. So not only does it become easy to forget throughout life just because of time, but also I think that it becomes easy to forget because of the harshness of the world in which we live. Consider all that the main characters of the book of Esther went through and um, by extension, the Jews in uh, the Persian Empire. They were faced with the horror of a tragic outcome, the threat of basically being extinguished. The edict had gone out um, because of um, Haman's uh, trickery, in, in a sense, and his hatred of Mordecai, a particular Jew. Because of his hatred of Mordecai, he wanted to see all Jews annihilated and destroyed. And so he gets the king to sign off on this without the king um, understanding the full details of what he was signing off on. Now, that's not to necessarily try to put the king in good light. The king, as we have saw throughout this series, um, was guilty of enough of his wickedness and, and evil. Um, but the Jews were faced with this threat of being annihilated, essentially, from the face of the earth. That would scar you, wouldn't it? 
It would scar your memory. It would, um, it would cause you to maybe, not maybe, it would cause you to question God's goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his kindness, wouldn't it? Now, you know, it's probably the case, most definitely the case, that none of us have been in that exact kind of situation, but every single one of us, by virtue of living in a world where things are not the way they're meant to be, a world that has fallen and a world that is so often incredibly harsh, we get wounded, we get damaged, things are done against us, things happen to us, we do things against other people, and it can become really difficult to have these things blotted from our memory. It can be very easy to fixate on these kinds of things because maybe they're so traumatic. They're so traumatic that they stick with us. And as we consider our present, as we look out to the future, it can be really difficult to imagine goodness, truth, and beauty. It can be really difficult to imagine God as one who is faithful because you're so fixated on your scarred memories. The Jews would have found themselves in similar, a similar situation and to a much larger degree. And so the end of the book of Esther comes with this basically mandate. This is what it is. It's a mandate to remember what God did, to remember how he intervened, to remember how he saved his people from destruction in ways in which the characters in the current moments of their lives, they couldn't see because, remember, God seems to be hidden in the storyline of Esther. He seems to be absent, but he actually all along was mysteriously present. And so at the end of this book, this mandate goes out for all Jews to remember what God did. This is formational. This is critical. Because what can the only thing that can help redeem our scarred memories is by remembering what God has done for us that has demonstrated his faithfulness and his goodness to us. And so I want you to think about what we're doing right now, what we've been doing since we've walked into uh, the doors of this building. It, It seems really ordinary, especially if you've grown up in the church, especially if you This is your regular rhythm. Most weeks you gather together for worship. It can become so familiar to you, you become so accustomed to it, that like anything else in life, you can forget the why. You You forget the meaning behind it, the meaning in it. But in many ways, you could summarize what we do in worship as the spiritual practice of remembering. We walk into this building each and every week with scarred memories. Some of them are really, really fresh, aren't they? As as you look back on the past week, maybe some of the memories that you're fixated on even right now that you can't uh, escape from, that you can't get out of your minds are are really fresh. They're things that happened to you this past week or things that you did and you've walked into this space with them. What we're doing together is remembering God. We're remembering who he is. We're remembering his work, his mighty deeds in history, his faithfulness to his people, so that those memories of God and who he is and what he does for us might help to redeem those scarred memories. 
Again, Margaret Bendroth says, remembering like all matters spiritual requires imagination, trust, and courage. This is what is so difficult about it. And, and I think, you know, it's just really interesting to me how uh, Purim, this uh, holiday, this celebration of remembering what God did, it was mandated. It wasn't simply a suggestion. It was a mandate put into writing. Because I think that God working through uh, Esther, Mordecai, he knows what life is like for us in a harsh and fallen world. He knows how easy it can be to forget his goodness. He knows how easy it is for us to focus on the scarred memories of life. But celebration, remembering, feasting, all of these things directs our hearts toward thankfulness. And I think this is really at the core of the issue here. God wants his people to be a thankful people. He wants them to be a thankful people um, for the, primarily for the purpose of worship. Because when we are thankful toward God, our hearts are bent toward worship. We have gratitude toward him. We're remembering who he is, what he's done for us in history, most especially in the person of Jesus Christ. But he also desires for us to remember in this way for our own good. Let me ask you this. What happens to you in your life in those Seasons of life in which you fixate only on your scarred memories. When you fixate on the trauma of your life, what, what happens to you? Who, who do you begin to become? What begins to characterize your life on a daily basis? If you're like me, it makes me incredibly prone toward cynicism. Can you relate to this at all? It makes me incredibly prone towards cynicism because I begin to, 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 I have these thoughts that God is not good. God is against me. If God was for me, he would have shown up in this situation. He would have revealed himself to me. And this is one of the dangers of the book of Esther. We talked a little bit about it last week. And the danger is this. The, the danger is the ending of Esther. In many ways, um, it has a happy ending, right? And they all lived happily ever after. There's a sense in which that is true, of course, um, just simply as you trace the narrative of this book. But guess what? Each and every person, each and every Jew in the Persian Empire, after this day in which Purim was mandated as something to be commemorated, they all would continue life on a daily basis in a harsh and fallen world. They would have things done against them. They would do things against other people. And not only that, but each and every one of them would eventually die, succumbing to the ultimate consequence of life in a fallen world as a result of sin, death itself. And so, yes, on the one hand, there is a happy ending to Esther, but there's not a happy ending in a way that romanticizes all of life. Because Here's the other thing about spiritual celebration and feasting, or at least what I think God intends for us, is that when we take time to reflect on God's goodness his thank, and we reflect on his faithfulness to us, God does not desire for us to romanticize the scarred memories of life. He does not desire for us to romanticize life that is harsh 
in a fallen world. Actually, he wants us to bring that fully into our celebrations, into our feasting. Because when we do so, we actually taste of his mercy, of his kindness, uh, of his faithfulness to us in deeper and grander ways. But we're prone toward cynicism. These memories can torment us. We need to remember. We need to feast. We need to celebrate so that God might redeem our memories. We also need um, to feast and celebrate, and this brings us back to one of the primary themes of Esther, because God does seem so hidden so often in life. You know, a, a good question um, to ask around uh, a feasting table, particularly one in which you are uh, enacting it as a spiritual practice, is how do you see God at work in your life? I shared with you um, a couple years ago, after we, I finished uh, the sabbatical that the elders had granted me to, coming up on two summers ago, um, that our family culminated the end of that summer sabbatical with a feast. And I'm actually going to read, as we conclude the sermon, a, a portion of a prayer um, that we read around the table at that meal. But what we did was we basically more or less asked the question of how do you see God at work? What were your favorite moments of the sabbatical summer. See, these are very practical ways in which we war against, in which we combat cynicism. Because if we don't take time to do this, if we do not create space in our lives to celebrate, to reflect on how God is present, we're going to give in to cynicism and we're going to live our lives as though we believe that God really actually isn't present. You know, the funny thing about God's presence, his providence, as we've talked about throughout this series, is that it is so incredibly mysterious. God does some of his best work when we think that he's not at work. He does some of his best work when we think that he is absent, but he's always mysteriously present. And apart from the spiritual discipline of from time to time trying to connect the dots, review what has happened, to reflect on how God has shown up, we can't do it. We can't do it. And we give in to cynicism. And so celebration and feasting are ways in which we combat and war against the cynicism that seems to always be coming at us and suffocating us. There is reason to hope. This is what feasting constantly lays before us. There is reason to hope. Yes, we live in a harsh and fallen world. That is still true. It was still true for the Jews, even as they moved on from the book of Esther. But there is reason to hope. And as we take time in community with others in particular to feast, to celebrate, to review God's faithfulness, guess what happens? That hope get, comes to the surface. The hope reemerges. And we're able to look to the future with hope. So here's the interesting thing about how this works in terms of time in our lives, time and space, is that when we reflect on what God has done in the past, we're able to remember in the present that he is a faithful God and that we have hope as a result and that we, as a result, can look to the future. Again, being realistic about all of the tragedies that will come, 
all of the harshness that we will encounter from life in a fallen world. But we can have hope that the gospel is true and that God is mysteriously present and he's unfolding his purposes on behalf of his people for his glory. But celebration and feasting also helps us to reawakening. And this is really the point where we are, isn't it? When we tap into hope, when we reconnect with hope, and it's not that we always come away from our feasting and our celebration, our celebration completely and fully renewed in hope. Sometimes it's just a small taste of it. But even then, something happens inside of us. We get reawakened. Throughout the Old Testament, God, we see God actually commanding his people to celebrate and feast. This isn't the first time and it's not the last time. You know, one significant event that God wanted commemorated in feasting was the Passover. And we could apply all of the logic and thoughts um, that we have up to this point about um, the establishment of Purim to Passover and other feasts throughout Israel's history because God wants his people regularly um, being thankful. He wants them regularly tapping into hope so that they can live in the present and the future. But as that happens, this God, by his Holy Spirit, does something effective. It's as though he, in a certain sense, makes those events of the past present to us. He makes them real to us. And this especially happens in the Lord's Supper, um, the table that we will come to shortly and that we come to every week. In this, as we come to this table in the Lord's Supper, we remember. We remember specifically what God did for us in Jesus, how he lived for us, but most especially how he died for us, so that we might be restored to relationship with God through faith, that we might be made his sons and daughters, that we might be a part of his family so that hope might actually really be ours. But as we remember, it's not just something in the distant past. It actually presents those realities to us in the present. It makes them real to us. It makes them alive to us. It refreshes us with them. It renews us with them and then sends us out of this place to live another week filled with hope. And then what's going to happen is that things happen to us. We do things against other people. Our memories get scarred. And guess what? I'm going to be here next Sunday, uh, not only because I have to preach and lead, lead in the service, but because I desperately need it. I need this rhythm of weekly worship, of this built-in gift that God has given us as his people to remember in a world in which it is so hard to remember God's faithfulness. But what's also beautiful about Purim is the symbolism of abundance. There's a symbolism of abundance here. We, we learn that part of the commemoration of, of, of Purim was the giving of gifts to others, uh, especially the poor. And this is how it always works in God's story. When we remember his faithfulness, when we are filled with hope, we aren't meant to just simply think about ourselves. Because when we feast with others around the table, when we celebrate, when we um, relive God's memories and his the re ways of redemption in our lives, it reminds us that he is an abundant God 
that his kingdom is a, a, a kingdom of abundance. It's bountiful. There are gifts overflowing. And these gifts aren't simply meant to be enjoyed by us ourselves. And the way that our hearts should be operating is that we shouldn't want that for ourselves. It should direct us out toward others, wanting to share God's good gifts with others, especially those who have less. This is part of the spiritual practice of remembering. Because as we give gifts to others, as we remember the poor, as we are commanded to throughout Scripture, we get formed as people. And let me say this, when we don't share our gifts, when we don't remember the poor as we are commanded, we also are formed as people. And the question is really this, do you want to be a person of abundance, a person of gratitude, a person of thankfulness, who does not hold on to your possessions? And for some of you, maybe it's the possessions isn't the issue. Maybe it's your space, your home. Uh, maybe it's um, your time, whatever it might be. But you see, when we learn to not hold on to those and to give of ourselves, not only is it a response to God in worship for what he's done for us, we actually are formed into people who are more Christ-like through our giving. Again, God commanded through Esther and Mordecai for Purim to be, uh, for it to be commemorated and celebrated annually. Why? For all that we're talking about. To be able to remember and for God's grace to, to refresh us and for us to come alive and to be filled with hope. The last thing I want to point out to you is this, that as we remember, as we are reawakened, this goes along with what I was just saying, what happens is that we remember the truthfulness of God's story. We remember that it's actually true, that yes, we live in a world that has fallen. Yes, sin is real. Our own sin is real. Yes, there's evil and wickedness that confront us on a daily basis. But God's story is true. God is at work in this world to redeem a people for himself so that one day he might redeem his creation. This is all true. We, meet, we need to be reminded of it. But as we remember the truthfulness of our story, we also remember that God grants us unbelievable dignity. And what I mean by this is that we are reminded of the fact that we are participants in God's story. We have a part to play. And this is really the beautiful thing about the trajectory of Esther. You see, ordinary people, now on the one hand you might say, well, Esther was a queen after all, and Mordecai becomes the right-hand man but don't of, of the king, but don't forget where they were in the beginning. Esther in an incredibly vulnerable situation and place in life, having been abducted and brought into this situation which she did not ask for. And for Mordecai to be under the threat of Haman, for all of these things that played out. But what we discover in the book of Esther is that God uses really ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And we see Mordecai, this man, this relative of Esther. We see Esther, this woman, and that should be surprising to us um, because 
of all of these men that we encounter in the book, we learn that God is using a woman like Esther even in ancient times to accomplish his, his purposes. He is bestowing incredible dignity to the characters in his story. And between Mordecai and Esther, we see this partnership, this collaboration between men and women fulfilling God's purposes on the earth. It takes us back to Genesis in the garden and creation, what God intends for his people. What does all of this have to do with feasting and celebrating? Because what it has to do with it is that when we celebrate and feast, we remember these things and we are reawakened to them, to the hope that we have, but also to the part that we have to play in God's story to extend that hope out into the world. And most um, definitely, what we are reminded of and um, reawakened to is the very work of Jesus. The very work of Jesus. And that's what's about to happen, as I've already mentioned, in the Lord's Supper. For those of us who um, have faith in Jesus, we believe he's Lord and our Savior, we're going to walk up to these tables, and we're going to partake of these very ordinary elements. I say this from time to time. You know, the bread was bought at an ordinary store, I assume. Uh, You can tell me if I'm wrong. Same with the wine and the grape juice. These are very ordinary elements, but this is how God works. He seems hidden, but he's mysteriously present. And we're going to remember We're going to remember that our salvation is secure through faith in Jesus. We did nothing to earn this. It's all a gift of God's grace. And as we're reminded of it, the Holy Spirit reawakens us to these realities. It it has the power to present them to us as though it's the first time we're ever encountering them. I want to finish by reading a portion of the prayer that I mentioned that we read as a family at the conclusion of my sabbatical two summers ago. This comes from a book that I highly recommend. It's called Every Moment Holy, and uh, it just contains a variety of daily liturgies and prayers for um, different seasons of life, different times of the day. And this particular liturgy or prayer is called Feasting with Friends. I'm not going to read it all because it's uh, fairly long. I'm just going to read portions of it as we conclude because I think it Um, It captures for us what God was doing through Esther and Mordecai to establish Purim for his people as a way to remember and to be reawakened. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair, for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends, new and old, and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. So let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. Bless us, O Lord, in this feast. May this shared meal and our pleasure in it bear witness against the artifice and deceptions of the prince of the darkness that would blind this world to hope. May it strike at the root of the lie 
that would drain life of meaning and the world of joy and suffering of redemption. May this our feast fall like a great hammer blow against that brittle night, shattering the gloom, reawakening our hearts, stirring our imaginations, focusing our vision on the kingdom of heaven that is to come, on the kingdom that is promised, on the kingdom that is already indeed among us. For the resurrection of all good things has already joyfully begun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have our best interests in mind, not only in unfolding your promises of redemption throughout history, in particularly giving us Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection so that we might be yours and so that our place in your story and the fulfillment of your kingdom might be secured. But you also give us daily gifts. You give us ordinary gifts. You give us food and drink in which we might remember and be reawakened to who you are and what you're up to in this world. We can't thank you enough for these gifts. We're sorry for how we overlook them. We pray that we would be better stewards of these gifts. And we pray for desire. We pray for motivation. We pray for uh, wisdom to be able to create space in our lives, both individually and communally, in order to spiritually remember, in order to feast, in order to celebrate together, because you are a God who has accomplished things for your people that are so worthy of being celebrated. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.